Good morning. It's Thursday, the 31st of August, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Pace of road construction in India could go up by 25% by next year, says Crystal Ratings. How taxi and auto unions are driving adoption of ONDC by the thousands. India's traditional industries like iron and steel lead the pack in gross value add or GVA contribution to the country's economy. And 32 companies apply to make laptops and tablets in India. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Road construction is picking up. Rating agency Crystal is projecting a sharp or 25% increase in pace of road construction in the country in the next two years. From around 21.6 kilometers a day in the first quarter of the last financial year, the rate is now at about 24.7 kilometers a day. This is expected to go up to 32 to 34 kilometers a day by the end of this year and 34 to 36 kilometers a day in the year after, which is 2024 25. At which point, some 12,500 to 13,000 kilometers of roads will be added annually. Separately, Crystal is projecting a 33% increase in renewables power sector capacity addition from about 30 gigawatts to 40 gigawatts in two years' time. All this is being driven by a major bump up in spending on both roads and renewables, separately, of course. The combined capital outlay on roads and renewables in the current and next fiscal is seen rising to 13 lakh crore rupees, which is about 35% compared to the preceding two fiscals, backed by strong execution speed, says Crystal. There are risks, of course, including aggressive bidding and execution by new entrants, says Crystal. Roads or the construction of them, as we know, tend to attract newcomers. Though looking at it a little more positively, companies that came into the limelight for road contracts went on to build and own airports in previous decades. The unions get into the game. The Open Network for Digital Commerce was initiated by the government but set up as a Section 8 company with investments from many organizations but mostly banks, public and private. The ONDC hopes to democratize e-commerce in India and bring buyers and sellers together at much more reasonable costs, if not totally free, as has been the case in some kinds of commerce, even if for a short while. ONDC defines this as a tech-based initiative to transform the way e-commerce functions by enabling it through an open protocol based on open source specifications. At one level, the ONDC picks up on the principle of public utility digital infrastructures like the UPI for transactions and Aadhaar for identity. The ONDC now has about 150,000 merchants on it, transacting via various apps in food, commerce and, importantly, mobility. And that means autos and taxis. This is where it gets interesting, at least at this phase. Some 90,000 of the 150,000 merchants on ONDC are auto and taxi drivers in places like Kochi where it started, Bangalore and Mysore, with more cities to join in. Bangalore alone sees thousands of transactions a day. More interestingly, the adoption of the mobility platforms has been driven by unions in Kochi and Bangalore, for example. All of which I found out thanks to my guest T. Koshi, CEO of ONDC, who I reached out to ask first where ONDC was today in his journey, and second, how or why mobility was taking off so fast. While we started the network last year, 
and have started the alpha testing where limited number of sellers across multiple cities making real transaction with their clients. You know, we started pushing to a broader audience in January this year in Bangalore, starting with few merchants, few network participants doing few transactions a day. Today, we have reached something like almost 950,000 merchants doing more than 100,000 transactions a day. But compared to the what is potential, what is available, it's really a tiny blip. But the good thing is there is humongous amount of merchants under various stages of integration to make their products visible from across the various segments of products and services. And there are different buyer applications like Paytm and Pinboard or PhonePay and MyStore, you know, which is a smaller startup. But number of the other big ones are under various stages of integration and I don't want to steal their thunder. So significant traction in network participants, merchants and buyer application encouraging buyers. And most of the growth and expansion that you're seeing right now is being driven by either people sharing information with each other or essentially organic growth. Is that right? Yeah. If you look at that, growth comes from two sides. One is more merchants and more buyers. So merchants are coming from the various initiative of making people aware of this. And some of the network participants take the extra effort to go out and evangelize this among the merchant network. And they're in different segments seeing different ones. For example, the restaurants are also being encouraged by the Restaurant National Restaurant Association of India, bringing together from their association. The mobility, you will see the unions coming. And now on the buyer side, you will see it is significantly coming from the various social media outreach that is happening from network participants and significantly supported by entities like Paytm and PhonePay of the world who already have a digital consumer base and now have come as a buyer application and they are using their existing channels to reach across to them and making them aware of something being there. So that's the kind of thing that is triggering. And of the 150,000 roughly merchants you said, almost 90,000 are taxis and autos in Bangalore and Kochi. So what's it about mobility or specifically autos or taxis which has made it catch on so much or so fast? Two things. One is then the whole idea of this open network was being attempted. The first thing that was attempted was in the mobility area as a pilot in Cochin and that where we had a partner, Jespay, who decided to just jump in on a blind faith on this idea. Because of that, there was a significant amount of work that they've done in this area and they developed a lot of confidence and you know fine-tuned the whole uh, into an implementation. That gave them the confidence to start in Bangalore for the auto. So that way, they had a lot of learning that helped them to sort of evangelize this. And more importantly, their unions, both in Cochin as well as in Bangalore, the drivers union also found that this is something that is more attractive to them. And with a lot more control in their hand with respect to terms and conditions of the whole arrangement. And they started very actively promoting that among their members to come onto the supply side and also telling their customers that this is a better way to sort of hail a ride. So if my driver tells me that is a great idea and I might be taking this every day to go to office, so then it becomes a practice. So those kind of things help. And commercially, I mean, in a broad sense, what is the difference that, let's say, a taxi driver in any of these cities would pay on the ONDC system versus what he or she would pay to, let's say, one of the international ride-sharing apps or even the Indian sort of more privately run apps? So, Gondaraj, I don't know how much they charge the ride-sharing app. When JustPay started, they practically said it's free. And the drivers were collecting the whole charge by themselves, so they kept it down. And I understand they just announced that they're going to charge some 25 rupees a day or something. Because that's all it needs for them to maintain this network 
and the drivers, I mean, they are the one who's doing all the work and they practically reap the benefit. Because the way that is there is, you know, one fundamental difference in an open network as it grows, not just for driving, etc. There could be significant amount of competition and there will be significant amount of participants who are trying to bring either supply or the demand, which means that the rent-seeking capability of few large platforms will come down. So that is a fundamental difference. So I believe that is what is the difference that is going to be demonstrated here too. Right. And it's an interesting thing because you're saying that the auto driver only pays 25 rupees a day and he could be or she could be carrying many rides on a particular day, but it's a fixed cost as opposed to paying per ride. Yeah, that's what Namayatri just announced. In fact, till quite some time they're doing it free. And now they just announced it, I think, 25 rupees essentially or some three and a half rupees per ride, maximum of 35 rupees, something. They've announced a scheme. The whole thing that is there, they're saying that I'm running a platform with more and more transactions coming. But my unit is coming down. I only need that money because I'm not giving any discount to the buyers. I'm not giving any special discount to sellers. It is a regular uh, taxi hailing being enabled by this network, making it convenient for the travelers, the consumers and the taxi drivers. Right. And last question, Kushi, does the ONDC earn anything from these people or is the ONDC like a public utility? No, our position is that as utility in the early stages, till it reaches a certain level, we will charge nothing. But eventually, it has to be a self-sustaining entity. There again, even for us, it's only a very marginal cost. We don't have any huge platform. Platform is done by the people or operators. So there'll be some kind of subscription charges kind of things to earn sufficient money to maintain the organization and to do the developmental work, which is a very, very marginal cost because we have no central system. We are only uh, the people who have Developing the protocol, maintaining the protocol, maintaining the registry, helping with the gateway and creating the club rules and having some good monitoring mechanism, educational mechanism for and so on and so forth. So the operation costs are practically small compared to a national level operations of food, grocery, financial products, B2B, B2C, everything. Right. Koshi, thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to speaking very soon again. Thank you. Have a nice day. And some markets news. You could call it a dull day in the markets, which it would have been were it not for the fact that the markets have now risen for the third day consecutively, even if only marginally. The BSE Sensex closed at 65,087 levels on Wednesday, up only 11 points. The Nifty 50 closed at 19,347, up 5 points. Manufacturing adds value to India. India's manufacturing sector will be driven by products linked to the capital expenditure cycle, which continues to rise, as we just heard from Chrysal and according to a new note from brokerage ICICI Securities. Meanwhile, while India's highest gross value-add contribution is in traditional industries like iron and steel and chemicals, the fastest growth in gross value added in the corporate manufacturing sector in the last decade was in communication devices, or 19% of compounded annual growth rate, according to the report. Now, this may run a little counter to the perception that electronics manufacturing in India is a little lower on the manufacturing value add scale or not moving up at the pace we would like it to. The top five contributors to corporate manufacturing gross value add in India are iron and steel around 11%, chemicals and chemical products around 10.5%, transport equipment at 10% and pharmaceuticals at 7.5%. So traditional industries are still scoring, at least on this count and on a relative basis. ICICI Securities has sourced these numbers from the national account statistics as well. 
Iron and Steel, by the way, includes companies like Jindal Steel, Tata Steel, while chemical and chemical products would include companies like Hindustan Unilever, Asian Paints, Pirelite, and Godrej Consumer, while transport will include Maruti, Suzuki, Tata Motors, and Bajaj Auto, among others. Now, you have to remember that some industries, like pharmaceuticals, would obviously have higher gross value add, or you could even call it gross profit, compared to, let's say, Iron and Steel. But this ranking tells you how these industries stack up against each other and in the total pie of gross value added in India's economy. To understand more on the significance of this number and the role of electronics manufacturing and communication devices looking ahead, I reached out to ICICI Securities strategist Vinod Karki and I began by asking him to take us through the findings. Yeah, Gomit. So I think there are two aspects to this. One is the way the manufacturing sector is right now. So these sectors are currently the largest ones. But you have to also look at how the growth will be, basically. So some of these sectors, for example, we have exhibited our leadership in terms of producing here and exporting globally. We have seen auto, a lot of auto manufacturing happens here, iron steel, we are top. So pharmaceutical, we know that, and textile. So we have shown the ability to have leadership in some of these sectors. But given the texture of the global economy and how things are panning out in terms of domestic demand and what's driving domestic demand, that will be the driver of manufacturing activity. That's what we have tried to tell because bulk of the demand that you've been seeing is coming from the investment side of the economy and pockets of discretionary consumption, be it auto and things like that. So I think those will continue to drive demand. But a lot of sectors where things are dependent on global demand might see weakness simply because some of these large developed markets will probably see more slowdown going ahead. And I mean, at this point, what's the definition that you've used for GVA or gross value added in your study, Vinod? So these are from national accounts. So it is exactly how the national accounts, the gross value added is computed at the economic level. The granular national accounts data gives you GBA for some of these data points. Unfortunately, they come with a lag. So since we have the GBA for 23 itself, but the granular accounts will come only after lag of almost a year. So FY23, so these numbers are for FY22. So we have to wait for some more time before these national accounts data are available to us. If I were to look at your list again, so in iron and steel plus casting, you have a percentage share of gross value added is 11.4%, and which includes companies like JSW Steel, Tata Steel, and so on. But in chemical and chemical product, where the percentage is less, it's marginally less, but it's 10.5%. The examples are companies like Levers and Asian Paints, Pidilite, Godish Consumer. So if you could explain to us how companies like this, which are strong brands, are still showing lower gross value added. Yeah, so they are. So see, in chemicals, what happens is if you are industrial chemical producer, let's say in agrochemicals, compared to one like an Asian paint, which again is in chemicals, but produces very high value addition products, basically like decorative paints and things like that. So you'll see that these companies command very high return on equity. Some of these personal products companies, which are again chemical based. So there you will see the return capital, return equity on these companies are very high compared to a typical industrial manufacturer of chemicals, which will have much lower equity return capital. And therefore, their valuations also differ a lot. Some of these chemical companies, which are branded products, have very high multiple as well. 
And communication equipment is the sector that you're saying has the fastest growth potential in terms of value addition, which of course runs somewhat contrary to some perception that's there. So tell us about it. Yeah, so if you look at the communication equipment, which is part of the electronic manufacturing and all, if you look at over the last 10 years, the CAGR of this sector in terms of GDA growth has been the highest, in fact, around 19%. But if you notice, it's quite small compared to the overall GDA or overall output, the economy. This is a new segment, so that's why I'm calling it a new frontier because we haven't yet proven our metal in terms of electronic manufacturing globally. This high growth maybe because we didn't have any base and some of the things we do right now are not to the extent which covers the entire value chain of a communication equipment like a mobile device from let's say producing the semiconductor or other essential components that go into the device we may be doing more of assembly and things like that but i think going by the narrative that we have seen a lot of these large component manufacturers are willing to set up their manufacturing base in India, be it uh, mobile glass or semiconductors and other components. So I think slowly and steadily we are moving there and the numbers are showing that the growth is there. Yeah, and if you're already at 18%, you're saying that if we start assembling more components in India uh, and eventually semiconductors and so on, then the value addition numbers should jump substantially. Yeah, because product after product, we have seen that no one is going to give you the entire value chain without proving your metal. You have to show that you can do that, you know. And we have seen, I mean, pharma, chemicals. And now, you know, Harley-Davidson is producing here. Triumph is producing. KTM is producing. These are world-class products which are being manufactured now in India and exported to the world. So we are reaching there slowly by slowly. New and high-tech products. It won't happen overnight for sure. You know, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Govind. While on the growth of electronics manufacturing, the government has received 32 applications from companies like Dell, Acer, Asus, Lenovo, Foxconn and Netware for the 17,000 crore rupee production-linked incentive scheme for IT hardware, which includes laptops, tablets and servers, the window for which closed last night. You may recall, of course, that the government has placed restrictions on laptop imports, asking manufacturers to apply for licenses at each stage. Apple, by the way, has not applied for this scheme at this point, going by reports. We are likely to see expected incremental production of 3,35,000 crore rupees and expected investment incrementally will be 2,430 crore rupees. The expected direct employment is going to be 75,000, according to Union Minister Ashwini Vaishnav. We had an outlay of 17,000 crore rupees for PLI 2.0, that's production-linked incentives phase 2, but got proposals of more than this number, he said. The government has also said, among other things, that beneficiaries should be using firmware or software that comes embedded within the systems for servers from Indian sources or other trusted foreign sources as certified by it. India opens up some of the rice gates. In our now almost daily coverage of rice and wheat developments, NRIs in Singapore are clearly more privileged than NRIs in the United States or UK or elsewhere. India, which accounts for about 40% of global rice trade, will now permit shipments to Singapore after it banned exports of non-Basmati rice last month. India's External Affairs Ministry spokesperson Arindam Bakchi said, India and Singapore enjoy a very close strategic partnership characterized by shared interests, close economic ties and strong people-to-people connect. In view of this special relationship, India has decided to allow export of rice to meet the food security requirements of Singapore. 
India had, of course, indicated earlier that it would export on a country-to-country basis for food security needs. Now, there are several countries in Africa, among other continents, who are reaching out to India to lift the ban to address their needs. The government is moving quickly and sometimes perhaps too quickly to respond to rising food prices and food inflation. On Monday, it reduced the prices of LPG gas cylinders by 200 rupees ahead of a festival season and, of course, elections a little later. Back on Wall Street and international markets, exchange-traded funds or ETFs have been the hottest product in towns once upon a time, not too long ago, but are now closing down at a rapid clip, with many niche products in the industry struggling to attract investors in a market dominated by a handful of big technology stocks, according to the Wall Street Journal. Exchange-traded funds track an underlying asset which could either be exclusively stock, commodities, bonds, currencies, options, money market instruments, or a combination of it all. ETFs can of course be equity ETFs, fixed income ETFs, commodity ETFs and currency ETFs. A typical equity ETF, for example, could track the movement of an index like the Nifty 50 or the BSC S&P 500. There are over 174 ETFs in India as on June 30th this year, according to reports. Now back internationally, global fund closures have climbed to 929 in 2023 from 373 at the same point last year, according to research from ETFGI quoted by Wall Street Journal. New listings still exceed closures but have slowed 27% to 1,622. We're still referring to exchange-traded funds, mostly in the United States or around. The closures reflect weaker inflows, waning enthusiasm for niche investment products and competition from big asset managers, which has consistently driven down fees. The Wall Street Journal says. To give an example of how perhaps bizarre it all got, one closure was of a Metaverse equity ETF focused on the concept popularized by Mark Zuckerberg of Meta or Facebook. This was a Generation Z ETF that promised to invest in companies aligned with the values of the younger generation. Among other closures, last week as it happens was of a cannabis-themed ETF whose shares had declined about 90% since its 2021 launch and was liquidated according to the Wall Street Journal. Some of these closures might actually be encouraging to regulators who have sounded the alarm over the riskiness of leveraged single-stock ETFs and similar products, says the Wall Street Journal. Back home, things seem fine for now on the ETF front, but a trend that might be interesting to watch and see how it develops and hope that it does not spill over into India. Amazon wants its people back. Among other international business news, Bloomberg is reporting that Amazon chief Andy Jassy is telling employees who refuse to comply with his return to office mandate that it's probably not going to work out for you, according to a recording of a company meeting obtained by Insider. Starting in May, Amazon began requiring corporate employees to be in the office three days a week, Morale in Amazon has apparently taken a hit, says Bloomberg, since the company laid off about 27,000 employees. Well, that's it from me for today. Have a great Thursday and see you tomorrow. Do write into us and do visit us on www.thecore.in, where you will find this podcast, links to our newsletters, and lots of exclusive reports and investigations. Bye for now. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. 
Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.